Welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Stand Up Tragedy is a live show and podcast that's been running for three years now and we've recorded loads and loads of tragic variety because what we do is we get people to come along to the show and stand up and do tragedy and we get people from a variety of different parts of the arts we've got comedians storytellers musicians spoken word artists and more and they come together to look at the sadder things in life with some laughs as well as some tears and we're taking a break from our live shows until february 2015 so to fill in the gap on the podcast we're putting together some special episodes that really celebrate what we think stand-up tragedy is about and showcase some of the amazing performances that we've got over the last few years. Today's episode is Selected Tragedy Volume 3, Tragic Folk, and it's going to have some different meanings of the word folk within it, but they're all going to be tragic. So we're going to have some tragic people, some tragic stories about people, We're going to have some tragic folk music, music that's influenced by folk. The nature of having a show where people stand up lends itself to acoustic stuff. And so a lot of the music that we tend to have at Stand Up Tragedy does have folk roots, at least. Because of the fact that it's folk stuff, it also has that kind of folk sensibility of standing up for political causes. Within this episode, we have that kind of element of folk as well, and the the idea that folk is, is the people's medium. Stand Up Tragedy looks at the sadder things in life, which means that there's a few sad things coming up in this episode, and you should be aware of them and expecting them. Today's episode deals specifically with dementia and death. It deals with racism and institutionalised state violence. If those are topics that will not be ones that you want to hear at the moment, then, then please don't listen. But everybody else, listen on. There's lots of laughs and lots of tears and all of the range of emotions and thoughts that we like to provoke at Stand Up Tragedy. The first of our tragic folk is Richard Tyrone Jones and this is a performance that he did with us at the Hackney Attic a few years ago. Richard Tyrone Jones has been a long time friend of Stand Up Tragedy. He supported us in many ways as well as performed with us frequently. We love what he does. He does some really great stuff. You'll hear him a few times in the Selected Tragedy volumes. He's recently announced his resignation from Spoken Word. We are sad to see him leaving, but we know he's going to carry on doing something interesting somewhere, and we hope that he'll be able to come on at Stand Up Tragedy in the future. You can find out what he's going to do next at www.richardtyronejones.com or follow him on Twitter at rtjpoet see what he does next so here he is performing with a migraine that he had as a result of some surgery that he'd recently had so sit back relax and prepare yourself for some tragedy come to the tragedy in in my own life uh, now well i say it's a tragedy uh, this poem is about uh, my grandmother's dementia but um, it's not so much a tragedy dementia as a more of a statistical and biological inevitability, but um, still sad. 
visiting time. This skeletal Michael Finnegan in a gown is all time's winds have left of old gran. Sharon Stone nappy flash. Water retention has inverted her legs. Thigh-like calves, veal calf thighs. It's like that film Memento, you remember, but with just the one death. Her memory's camera zooms towards her birth. The film's end. And every five minutes, a new time traveller teleports into her body, the pod from 68, 67, 65, and we explain it all again. What year is this? Role-playing. I'm her nephew, son-in-law, sisters, our daughters, she's got to see her dad. Playing happy families, the old maid shuffles the pack. The songs she sings are from the war. Her vision's gone, can't see past 1944. Can't even watch TV, even if she could. At three pounds per day, they're all turned off and to the wall. Neglected patience. These screens fade to white dots, leaving only an afterimage pressed on the retina. A song stuck in the memory of those about to leave repeats, all just repeats. Visiting time is over. Cheers. Uh, the thing about dementia, if you've been lucky enough not to have any relatives um, suffer from it, is that uh, it very much kind of takes your psyche and, and, and opens it up like a Russian doll and, and, and takes away all, all of the kind of politeness and civility and the social rules uh, that you've learnt. And then a little bit further in, it takes away your ability to remember people's names or, or what they've been doing. And, and then just really boils it down to the centre of the doll and you really find out what that person was like right in the centre. And my nan was all right, actually. She was um, pretty, pretty happy and used to wander down the wards in the hospital with another old lady, pretending that they were... Pretending, imagining, kind of projecting that they were uh, going to wait for a bus at the bottom of the, uh, the corridor and go off on an adventure. And uh, it was actually quite nice. Um, Unfortunately, as I say, it's a genetic inevitability. Uh, my mum now has a um, very similar kind of dementia, Benson syndrome, uh, which is the same uh, kind of dementia that uh, Terry Pratchett has, where you kind of forget the, the words for things and you lose all your motor skills first, but it still maintains your interrelationships and she can still thankfully remember who people are and, and, and that she loves them and, uh, and little things that they've been up to and, and still, are still a joy. Uh, unfortunately, that kind of pairing down from the outer personality down to the inner, um, that, while, it, while, it was while it's been happening to my mum, uh, it was having the same or similar effect uh, to my dad as well, but not directly, not through dementia. My dad... Uh, throughout last year um, started to have a complete mental breakdown partly caused by I think um, the, the fact that he, he was always quite Asperger's a very manly man 
who uh, used to um, find a lot of his, his own self-worth and value in, in physical activities like managing football and in going out and earning money. He's very much a kind of 1950s kind of guy. And so when he couldn't help my mum and he couldn't accept that, and also he had to have uh, a couple of um, uh, hip replacements himself, and he had a lot of difficulty um, dealing with the, the change in roles and uh, basically, it, 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 it's at times like these. Um, Bryony's been kind of interviewing all of the artists. You know, what, what do you get out of writing about tragedy? And I think that writing about tragedy does really help you make sense of it all and, and stop you from going mad, really. Or maybe you'd, you know, there's still just as much madness, but you just pour it out down onto the page, I think. Um, my dad never had any of that and was... Um, swiftly reduced to wandering around the house, not wanting to go out in case anybody saw him and kind of hitting himself and um, uh, shouting, we had everything, but now we've lost everything. Um, and we've got nothing now. And I've ruined your mum's life and taking everything onto his shoulders. And um, a week before Christmas last year, um, he, we thought he'd been getting better, but he was just kind of hiding uh, how bad he was and uh, he hung himself from the banister and my sister found him just kind of dangling there like a fucked up Christmas decoration and um, the weirdest thing when you're dealing with all the, the admin um, of someone's death um, the thing that struck me the most or my, my sister which he somehow managed to maintain a sense of humour about it all, all the stuff that we've had to do all the paperwork she's put in a a folder with dadmin written on it. The thing that struck with me is not the, the funeral. I, I didn't cry very much at the funeral. I didn't cry very much when we were scattering the ashes. The thing was um, getting rid of his clothes and thinking, what, what should we do with how we get rid of them? And this is um, about that. And it's called Strip Away. Not much. Six bags, one cardboard box. Of notes, sun hats from red-skinned Cypriot holidays. Football manager coats he'd shrunk out of. His silk-effect PJs somehow unsoiled. Old hands will sift them, sighing, singing, Matalan, Matalan, Primark, Matalan. His newest watch went to his oldest friend, who'd given him one last gift for the fire, an away strip. I've kept the belt, he didn't snap. A reminder to keep it all together, tight. It's like scattering ashes. We stick them in the boot, look for a nice village with a good view. Far enough away, no relatives will buy them. Make us think, panicked glance, he's somehow back. What's saddest isn't the waste. How man maketh the clothes that their wearer would have urged us to sell them, but how every human feeling is just one spring clean away from not existing. If I thought of those clothes hanging there alone, wondering why he abandoned their warmth, I could almost give them tears. I just shiver. Thank you.
well, one more. Um, you don't know what, how, quite how to react at the end of one of my poems, do you? Just, it's just, I don't know, clapping? Or, um, yeah, just a bit of silent weeping, I think. And then I'll come round with a teak pipette, collect those tears, and then fill my pen with them, and write even more sad poems. Like the emotional vampire that all of us poets are. Uh, so, yeah, but I suppose the, the point is not all of this tragedy, but how it affects you. And hopefully what, what you learn from it and, and the, the shifts that it makes within, you know, your soul, if that's not too old-fashioned a word. So here's, here's um, uh, uh, one last poem. I was lying in hospital not knowing whether I would live or die from heart failure. And, oh, the only way to find out whether I did die uh, or not, in fact, is, is to buy this book, which is six pounds. Um, or, or you can get both of my books, uh, Big Heart and uh, Germline, the first one. Oh, often witty, sometimes unsettling, and always smart, according to Tim Key. Uh, you get both of those uh, for ten quid. Or six pounds each. But anyway, uh, back to the spiritualism. Um, I, I had this, if you will, a, a vision. Footprints in the sand. One night, I dreamed I was walking along the beach with the Lord. Many scenes from my life flashed across the sky. In each scene, I noticed footprints in the sand. Sometimes... There were two sets of footprints. Other times, there was only one. This bothered me because I noticed that during the low periods of my life, when I was suffering from pain, anguish or defeat, I could see only one set of footprints. So I said to the Lord, You promised me, Lord, that if I followed you, you would walk with me always. But I have noticed that during the hardest, most trying times of my life, there has been only one set of footprints in the sand. Why, my Lord, when I needed you most, did you abandon me? And the Lord replied, Oh, my son, but at those hardest, most trying times of your life, you were being an annoying, self-pitying, sniveling little shit. Can you blame me for fucking off? <laughs> yeah, fair enough, Lord. I replied. Thank you very much. Um, this next song is one that I recorded in January and it's a title track of a wee EP that I released. It's on iTunes and whatnot. Um, it was about a dream I had about a wee old lady in a house um, who was too scared to go outside and she just spoke to people through writing letters. It might not sound that tragic, but I felt so sorry for her that I wrote a song, and it's called Typewriter. The ribbon is tangled in her typewriter. She cannot write him a letter. The paper is mangled in her typewriter She prays that today will get better Delicate whispers do not travel Neither do her cry 
But hollow hopes are only wishful lies To save the task of having to that you just heard is one of our favorite discoveries that we've had during our time at Stand Up Tragedy. That's Josie Rose, who makes 
beautiful music, both original and covers. She performed with us for the first time at Edinburgh 2013. And she approached me a little bit before that and said, you know, are you interested in a harp player at Stand Up Tragedy? And the word harp, of course, that drew me to her. But Josie Rose, and I'm sure you'll agree, is so much more than just a harp. And her music is really good. And she's such a warm presence on stage as well. And her voice is is excellent. Go and find her and listen to more of her stuff and buy it and all of that stuff. She's at Josie Rose Music on SoundCloud. She's also got a Facebook page, Josie Rose Music, and she's on Twitter, Josie Rose Music. So you can find her in all of those places. You'll also find her later in this episode because we're going to use another part of the performance that she did with us at Edinburgh this year, later in the show. That, and that's going to be a cover of a traditional Scottish song, complete with traditional Scottish dialect. That's coming later, but we still have something to queue up now that's traditional, because we've got Steffi Harrop doing some storytelling. And Steffi's another person that we have loved having at Stand Up Tragedy and who has impressed me so much in her performances. She's a storyteller doing contemporary oral storytelling and you can find her at www.steffiharrop.co.uk That's S-T-E-P-H-E-H-A-R-R-O-P You can find her there and you can also find her in your ears in just a moment because here she is performing with us at the Hackney Attic a couple of years ago. Mr Fox was wearing a smart red coat. Mr Fox was wearing a new embroidered waistcoat. Mr Fox had had his whiskers neatly trimmed and he was actually wearing a little bit of scent as well. Because this was Mr Fox's wedding day. Mr. Fox looked around the room at all his friends and his neighbours gathered together, all of them eating, all of them drinking, all of them smiling. All except Lady Mary, who sat beside Mr. Fox, her face as white as her wedding dress. The bride hadn't eaten a bite of her wedding breakfast. The bite that she hadn't taken stuck in Mr. Fox's mind. Why wouldn't she eat? Why wouldn't she drink? Why was the bride not smiling? After all, this was the happiest day of her life. Mr. Fox leaned over. My dear, he smiled a toothy smile. My dear, can I tempt you to a slice of goose pie? A spoonful of syllabub? A small glass of wine? Lady Mary shook her head. Lady Mary said, I feel a bit strange. I had the strangest dream last night. And 
Mr. Fox rose to his feet. Mr. Fox smiled at all his friends, all his neighbours. He said, Lady Mary, my dearest beautiful wife, dreamed a dream last night. Tell us your dream. Lady Mary rose to her feet, her face as white as her wedding dress. And in a very small, very soft voice, she told her dream. She said, I dreamed. I dreamed, Mr. Fox, that I was walking in our garden. And then I dreamed that I, I went out through the garden gate and into the woods. And then I was walking through the woods. And then I came to your garden, Mr. Fox. I came to your garden gate. And up above the gate, there were words written. Be bold, be bold, but not too bold. I pushed the gate open, Mr. Fox, and I went into your garden and across the garden and to your front door. And there again I saw the words written, be bold, be bold, but not too bold. I pushed open the door, Mr. Fox, and I went into your house and I went across the hall and up the stairs and I went all the way to the door of your study, Mr. Fox. And there again the words, Be bold, be bold, but not too bold. I pushed open your study door, Mr. Fox. And what did I see? Inside that room, I saw women and girls, Mr. Fox, dozens of them, and every one of them pale and splashed with blood, and every one of them hanging by her hair like a dead crow might hang nailed to a farmer's fence. And then, and then, then, Mr. Fox, I ran out of your study. Then I ran down the stairs. Then I ran across the hall. But as I ran through the window, I saw you, Mr. Fox, coming through the garden. I saw you coming and I saw you carrying something in your arms, something pale, something white, something that struggled. So I hid, Mr. Fox. I hid behind the sofa in your hall and I watched you come through the door. You were carrying a woman in your arms and maybe she had fainted because she wasn't struggling anymore. Her white hand hung limp and as it dragged along the ground I could see that she wore a sparkling diamond ring. You saw the ring too. Mr. Fox, you saw it, and your eye sparkled brighter than the diamond. You tried to tear it off her finger with your teeth, but you were too rough, Mr. Fox, and away came her whole white hand, splashing the floor with blood, and that white hand spun through the air, 
it landed, Mr. Fox, where I lay hidden. It landed in my lap. And then you went upstairs, and I put that hand in my pocket, and I ran. I ran across your garden, I ran through the woods, I ran across my own familiar lawn and home and into bed, and then, and then, Mr. Fox, that's when I woke up. There was a pause, as well there might be. And then, Mr. Fox, he smiled, his toothy smile. He laughed. He turned to Lady Mary and he said, of course, it was just a dream. It is not so, and it was not so, and God forbid that it should be so. It is not so, and it was not so, and God forbid that it should be so. It is not so. It was not so, and God forbid that it should be so. It is not so, and it was not so, and God forbid, and Something went arcing across the room. Something small, something white, something that glittered as it span through the air. Something that landed with a wet plop on Mr. Fox's brand new waistcoat. Mr. Fox looked down and there it lay, a small white hand wearing a diamond ring and there was Lady Mary on her feet and there was Lady Mary pointing her finger like a fury. It is so and it was so. Here's hand and ring I have to show. It is so and it was so. Here's hand and ring I have to show. It is so and it was so. Here's hand and ring I have to show. A dozen sword blades flashed in the air and Mr. Fox fell dead. Thank you very much. Oh 
the soil looks so dark and inviting to slumber but never to stir. There's barely a smile from my family. They've heard those stories of me. Hello Body, who came from Bristol to do some folk music with us back in 2013 at the Dog Star in Brixton. Next up, we have Charlie Harrison, who's a comedian now. At this stage, I think she was just about being a comedian. She just started being a comedian, but before that, she was also very much a true storyteller. So this is a kind of mixture of true storytelling and comedy, I guess. Charlie has been a part of the stand-up tragedy team at times over the years. She's 
hosted stand-up tragedy for me when I've not been able to attend them. She told this story a few years ago at a night that we did in the Hackney Attic. It was the same night that Richard Tyrone Jones, who you heard earlier in the episode, is the same night that he performed. And it was a very dark night, some of the material that we had on the stage. And Charlie gave us this story, which even though it deals with some sad emotional feelings of her childhood that she had, it also brought light and joy into the room in comparison with the other things that had just been happening. You can find Charlie online at Charlie Lucy Ha on Twitter, and she spells Charlie C-H-A-R-L-E-Y, and at charlielucyharrison.com. Uh, so we've had stories about the Holocaust. We've had stories about paedophilia. We've had stories about dementia. My story's about a rat, so we can all relax. All relax. Just relax now. Um, I've been thinking about tragedy and how tragedy is basically... Uh, it's about contrast tragedy. So in tragedy, you get massive highs and you get massive lows. And nowhere is that more true than when you're a child. So you'll know this if you've ever seen a child on the street crying, like, ah! You know, you know that that is the worst thing that's ever happened to that child in that moment. Uh, my story is about... Uh, it's a tragedy that happened to me as a child and explains why I'm so fucked up. <laughs> OK. My 11th birthday was the best birthday ever. It's the best birthday ever. My 12th birthday was the worst. Okay, so on my 11th birthday, uh, I'm 11, I, I sort of lived the kind of suburban middle-class dream. I lived in a place called Ryslip. <laughs> Woo! Yeah, Ryslip, man. DFS in Ryslip. Land of leather. Yeah. Um, I grew up in a place called Ryslip. It's a great place to live when you're 11. Probably not a great place to live at any other age, but it's a great place to live when you're 11. We had the woods. I sort of lived with my mum and my dad and my brother in this lovely house. We had two cars. Um, I was sort of living the dream, and things couldn't get much better until they actually did. On my 11th birthday, my grandmother, who was a very nice lady, uh, she gave me £50 for my birthday, and she said, yeah. She said, do whatever you want with this money. Um, you know, and that's quite a lot of power as an 11-year-old, you know. That you do whatever you want. There was only one thing that I wanted as an 11-year-old girl, and that was a best friend. <sighs> thanks, guys, thanks. Um, and when I realised £50 couldn't get me a human, um, I went for the next best thing, which was a pet rat. Now, has anyone in the audience ever had a pet rat? Woo! You've had a pet rat. What was your rat called? Mouse and mole. Two, mouse and mole. Nice. Good. Rat connection. Yeah. Uh, my rat was called Wilbur, and Wilbur became my best friend. Me and Wilbur were inseparable from the moment I got him. Uh, we were sort of like Bonnie and Clyde. We did everything together. He went around in my sleeve and on my shoulder. If you've ever kind of fallen in love... Imagine that kind of process. That was what happened between me and Wilbur. We used to talk about everything. We used to talk about how I was going to become more popular at school. 
um, how I was going to finish up my Spice Girls photo collection album. It just, you know, confide, yes, Spice Girl photos. Yeah, um, so we'd just talk about everything, and it was wonderful. It was a wonderful life. A couple of months after this 11th birthday, uh, we're sat at family dinner, Sunday lunch, conservative family, you know, and my mum, who... Until this moment, has only really been famed for her ability to get out stains out of, um, out of clothes, and uh, she makes a great cottage pie. She decided to announce quite calmly to the family that she was leaving the conservative family home to fulfill her dream of becoming a real life lesbian. <laughs> Not only was she becoming a real life lesbian, but she was having a relationship with someone from the local church who I like to call Janet from another planet. <laughs> so, obviously, cue loads and loads of drama, my dad having a nervous breakdown, you know, all kind of drama, and me and Wilbur, our relationship takes another kind of deeper level. We stop talking about popularity in Spice Girls. We start talking about the spectrum of sexuality the institution of marriage and what love really is. So, you know, there's all this drama happening and me and my mum, we have to leave the family home. Um, and luckily, a local friend, her name's Val, she takes us in um, so we can live there until we find a place. Um, unfortunately, you know, I was kind of going along with all this. You've got to remember, I was quite sort of eager to please 11-year-olds. So I just thought, yeah, we're going to live with Val. But the worst thing about this was Val has a phobia of rats, right? So my best friend, my confidant, had to go elsewhere. Janet from another planet decides that she's going to kind of build a bridge here. And she says, don't worry, I'll have the rat and I'll keep it in my office. You can come over, you can play with it. And so I guess this was kind of an idea. And I said, okay, this is fine. You might have, you know, broken up my perfect dream life, but you'll look after my rat, cool. Um, and uh, yeah, so I guess this was an idea that would build a bridge. Or so she thought... Uh, so I'm living with Val, I'm, I'm sharing a room with like an eight-year-old, fat eight-year-old, obnoxious child, and I'm sort of going along with it, I'm just sort of trying to be best friends to my mum and sort things out, and a few months go past, it comes to my 12th birthday, and of course I love birthdays, my 11th birthday was the best birthday ever, as we know. I'm so excited um, because Val has turned around. She, obviously, she knows I've had a tough year. And she says, um, Charlie, I know you've had, you know, it's been difficult, uh, uh, you know, what you've been through. But for your 12th birthday, you can have a party here. And not only can you have a party, but you can bring the rat. For one day only, Wilbur, the rat, can come and join us. So I'm really, really excited about this. I'm just thinking, you know, birthdays are a time where you can kind of escape from the, from the depressing nature of life. So it's just like, oh, brilliant. You know, really, really excited about this. And I didn't have many friends at the time, but some of my mum's friends said they'd come, which was quite nice. And so, I'm, you know, and my mum's found a flat as well. So I wake up on my 12th birthday and I think everything's going to be all right, you know. Everything's going to be all right. My mum's found a flat. We're going to go live there and it's all good. Wilbur's coming over. I've decided to make it a joint birthday party because, of course, I got Wilbur a year previously. So I make the invitations. Charlie and Wilbur's birthday party. Hand them out. Really, really excited. I got a fuse bar. Remember the fuse bar? I got writing icing and I wrote Wilbur on it as a sort of tribute birthday cake. 
I'm so excited, so I wake up, it's five sleeps, it's four sleeps, it's three sleeps, it's two sleeps, it's one sleep, and I wake up and I'm 12 and I'm really, really excited, and we get into my mum's Volvo, we drive to Janet from another planet's office, and I get there, and I'm being a bit silly because it's my birthday and I'm really excited, so, you know, I'm sort of singing, and I thought, I'll sing happy birthday to the rat, and we get out into the office, I get in, happy birthday to you, I run over the cages there as normal, happy birthday to you, see the rat? Wilbur's having a little sleep, like for probably a disco nap for the party. Happy birthday, dear Wilbur. I pick up, I touch the rat and kind of try and sort of wake him up. And he's quite cold. But, you know, it's quite a cold office, so, you know, I thought that's to be expected. Happy birthday to you. And I pick up Wilbur, and his little claws are clutching the hay from the cage, and he's in a spasmodic heart attack pose. Wilbur's dead. And that's not where the tragedy ends, because, of course, you know, then we had this party plan. My mum's friends were back at Val's house, waiting with presents for Wilbur to open. Then I have to sit in my mum's Volvo with a dead rat in a cage. And, you know, that whole year, from 11 till 12, I hadn't cried once. And as I sat there with a dead rat in a cage on my lap, ready to go to the shittest birthday party ever... A year of tears flooded over me. And I cried and cried and cried. And the reason, the reason I've been thinking about this story, really, is because I've been looking over my old diaries recently and trying to work out why I'm so fucked up, I guess. And <laughs> uh, one of the things, I mean, when I found my diaries from a 12-year-old girl, my 12-year-old self writing, I was quite geeky, so I used to make these lists. And this is what kind of made me think about this story, and so I was going to tell you tonight. I found this list in my 12-year-old diary, and it said, 10 reasons I hate Janet from another planet. Number one, she killed my rat. <laughs> Thank you very much. I've been Charlie Harrison. Thanks for coming tonight. Appreciate it. This next recording isn't our best sound quality ever because it was recorded during the first year that we did the show, and that was at the Leicester Square Theatre. And I was doing the recording, and then I didn't do it very well. Let's just admit that it was my fault. But we improved our recording as we went on into the second year of doing the show and Stephen Harvey took over responsibility for doing that and he does it really well. It is always hard though to capture good sound quality in live venues. So we do our best, but really what we care about at Stand Up Tragedy is content rather than the exact perfect sound quality. And so if we think something's great, we want to share it with you anyway. But just to flag that up to you now, that it's not as well recorded as the other stuff you've heard. And yet the content is really strong because this is Grace Petrie. And she performed with us at the Leicester Square Theatre during our first year. I think she performed on our last night and it was a really good night, a really strong lineup. She was really brilliant. And... I was really pleased to have her at Stand Up Tragedy because one of the things I think that the theme Stand Up Tragedy chimes very well with is how absolutely tragic, sad, depressing, upsetting 
politics and the world is. And we need to talk about that. That's something that we need to look at and examine and improve on. And if one of the ways that stand-up tragedy has gone has been about self-improvement, it's been about looking at mental health issues and personal interior stuff and exploring those things and looking at the darkness there. Another part of looking at the darkness that I think we do really well and that I want to have at our shows is looking at the darkness in politics, looking at it in the face, you know, challenging it. And that's what Grace is going to do in this song. Farewell to welfare. So here she is. Do you want an angry song or a sad song? Shout now for angry. Angry! angry. Shout now for sad. Sad! Uh, you even sound sad. <laughs> okay, angry it is. Um, mostly, uh, mostly, I've talked, I've mentioned my girlfriend um, tonight. Um, I am gay. Uh, one of the things that made me angriest to begin with about this government. Uh, was when Theresa May was, uh, was appointed minister, uh, Home Secretary um, and also Minister for Women, uh, lol, uh, and Equalities, uh, ruffle. Uh, and as both a woman and a gay person, I found that to be pretty fucking insulting. Um, so I wrote this song about it, and um, yeah, I wrote it almost two years ago, and terrifyingly almost everything in it has come true. Uh, this is called Farewell to Welfare. My name is Grace Petrie. Um, feel free to follow me on Twitter if you want to know about the mundane goings-on of my life. <laughs> I am at gracepetrie.com. Uh, you've been really lovely, and thank you today for having a lovely time. It's been a great night. Thank you. It's never too late to recapture the Section 28 And it's never too wild To slash benefits for single mums The only victim is the child And oh, who's gonna be My Martin Luther King And I'll say, who's gonna be My Harvey Milk And on the steps of Parliament They're demonstrating But what's the use when they're all cut From the same Eton silk I'll say farewell Farewell to beat so let's put more money into the jubilee and a millionaire in Downing Street and someone's got to foot the bill let's start with the disabled and the mentally ill and if I keep my receipts can I claim back the mistakes and the lives ruined by this government or in another 18 years of budget cuts and tears will the people pay for those just like we pay Until the first glimpse of power Make a deal with the devil And you tell me that this is democracy And you tell me that it ain't no old boys club And as the thousands march on Westminster And look how quickly their demands are snubbed And you ask me, where is the hero? Well they didn't let me in So you'll find me in the pub Raising a toast 
of a Briton Where I'd be Proud to bring our kids These days I'd settle For a Briton Where I'd be Allowed to bring our kids And Mrs May If I may be so bold as to say That your archaic view of family Holds no relevance today And if you think that honest people Really should be turned away From IBF and B&Bs Just because they're gay I suggest you stop requesting That we continue to pay Our taxes to a party That's held us back all the way I'll take my business and my produce and my find Grace's music and you can buy Grace's music over at gracepetrie.com which is grace p-e-t-r-i-e and how fitting to follow Grace with this next performer Keith Jarrett. Keith is someone we really love at Stand Up Tragedy. I I tried to get him for ages, but he was so busy that he could never perform. And then finally, he performed with us at Tragic History earlier this year at the Hackney Attic. And he came on and he was the last act on before the sing-along at the end of the show. And he blew everybody away in the audience. And he wrote a piece specifically for Tragic History. And it's political, it's personal, it's moving, and it's important. And it's particularly I think important to consider the kind of stuff that Keith's talking about in his poetry in this set you're just about to hear at this time given the current events that are taking place in America. It's not my place to really speak on those events but I think that the piece that you're going to hear now chimes very much with things we need to be thinking about and interrogating in ourselves and When I say in ourselves, I mean people like me, white people like me, and maybe some of you. We need to be thinking about getting this cancer that's inside our socialization out of ourselves because this cannot continue. Keith's poem was written before the news headlines that I'm referring to, but as you'll hear, this isn't new. This isn't new. It's been going on throughout history and what more appropriate place to talk about the tragedies in recent and distant history than our tragic history night so keith made a perfect end note and here he is at keith j london is his twitter handle which isn't a spoiler now for when i say welcome to the stage keith jarrett 
Hello. Um, so yeah, I, I, these days I'm mostly writing poetry about um, myself. It's usually personal stuff. And so when I was invited to do tragic history, I thought, oh, my concept of history um, is just slightly under 30 years. Um, <laughs> but I realized that actually you can, you can get a lot of tragedy. You can get a lot of history into 30 years because that's enough time for shit to happen and for um, people to reinterpret it and for history to be revised and for there to be disputes and for it to be repeated. Um, and that's kind of where this kind of came from. Ten tragic truths about history. One warm July. A rapist slash terrorist suspect suffocating in his padded jacket strolled, no, galloped alongside the Stockholm traffic. He strode into a tube station and hurdled over the shoulder blade barriers onto the waiting train carriage, hotly pursued by the men in blue. And we know too well where this story leads to, because there are two main uses for history, study and revision. There are three main uses for history, study, revision, and repetition. What else would people use it for? For One restless summer in Tottenham, a week before the whole world learns the name Mark Duggan, several bullet holes are shot through a truth we will never get to know because the story keeps changing. And five, because the story keeps changing, caring whether a politician calls a cop or a pleb comes quicker than caring when a copper kills a man with a less than squeaky clean demeanor. Six, the accounts read like poetry, imaginative, elusive, meandering, because the story keeps changing, and the officer who claimed to witness the politician calling his colleague a pleb wasn't even present at the time. Seven, in the present time, the camera always lies. Our lives rely on false evidence and false prophets and forced forgetfulness. Stephen Bogle, Kingsley Burrell, Dale Burns, Donald Chambers, Smiley Culture, Dimitri Fraser, Philip Hume, Cynthia Jarrett, Sean Rigg, Azel Rodney, Habib Ullah, and a list of the lost that could go on for more than 10 minutes. Eight, history is full of omissions. Blessed are they who commit it to memory. Blessed are they who admit their wrongdoings and misgivings and ignorance. Nine, history is revised. In schools, a new slimline textbook portrays the glories of empire. World War I gets a glossy makeover and Blackadder is categorically banned by Gove. <laughs> On the last day of my GCSE exams, I burn my textbooks and unlearn what I can as the smoke is passed around in a two-puff pass. There are only four real uses for history. Study, revision, repetition, and forgetting, because the story keeps changing. It's riddled with bullet holes. The past is passed around mouth to mouth in tiny, tiny gulps and burns out. Back to one warm July. An out-of-court settlement silences a grieving family. The unfounded rape allegation vanishes from headlines quicker than the fabrication of his padded jacket and fair evasion. The story keeps changing. In Tottenham, a gun is discarded from a moving car just before it allegedly shoots. 10. History never finishes. New shoots spring up. New truths bend around old tongues and legends are split into rivers of allegiances, forked, knived into skin, into lives torn by rifts, collateral damage, refugee statuses and cut like benefits. 
I could tell you that double think becomes spin doctor, becomes PR, becomes self-asphyxiation, becomes death by misfortune, becomes cause unknown, becomes freedom fighter, becomes terrorist, becomes ally. Ally? And on my shelf, stagnating in an overpriced bedsit, a book sits spinelessly waiting to be reread. But I know how it ends. With these four words. He loved Big Brother. Thank you. So I guess, seeing as I mentioned my my bookshelf, I'll kind of go kind of seamlessly onto another part of my personal tragic history, which is the end of a relationship um, last year, and um, and just staring at my bookcase, thinking, shit, I've got to fit extra books into my case because I've got to get all of my junk out of my ex's flat, um, which is great. Um, so yeah, his history and like and great. And that's tragic. So, on my case. First, the instrumentals. Hi-hats, dirty bass, and a theme I lean back to on a gloomy Sunday. Then the book I'll never read again. My mind too stacked to reach for the shelf. My spine too slack to give it away. There are endings, and there are endings. I have a big heart on one of the two Valentine's cards I left unsent. The cellophane wrap reads, blank on the inside. I'll leave them be, like the unspent euros lining the pen pot, along with other foreign objects. Hollow pen lids, broken buttons. I'll leave them, like my headphones, hanging on to the end of a nod, plugged into nothing but this Sunday and the shadows and the phone that rings and rings and knows I won't pick up. Thanks. So, cheers, no need to clap. Ah, that would be tragic. Um, so, um... <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I, I like the list thing, so I'm going to just riff off the, the, the ten. Um, and uh, this is going to be ten ways. I, I like ten ways because I, like, I write lists every day. Um, and I work at a school and I feel more empowered if I write a list. Um, even if I don't achieve even one thing, then, then I have a list, a record. Um, and so that's how I started writing my poetry as well. 10 ways to avoid hearing him say sorry. One, change the subject. The weather is plentiful. The rain is problematic. The third stare still snitches on you even 10 years later when you try to creep upwards unnoticed. Two, this close up, your dad's head is like the large Dutch pot above the kitchen cupboard. Leave that to stew for a few minutes. Three, in Latin American Spanish, ahorita is an imprecise way of saying not quite now. Feel your tongue curl up on the R. Flick it out like a Swiss knife. Cuatro, no entiendo English. Five, use find and replace to destroy the word or press backspace till your PC beeps a void. Six, beat into it. I'm sorry for those unanswered texts. I'm sorry for ever being 15 years old. I'm sorry for taking the knife out the house. It wasn't like that. I promise. 
Seven, sorry isn't the hardest word to say. For me it's world and the way it whirls empty in my mouth. If you're Yonosuke, the Japanese student I taught, scrawl will sound like a mess of consonants surrounding one lonely vowel. It is one of many things you cannot vocalize. Eight, the search engine told me that in Japanese, I'm sorry is pronounced suminasen. Nine, lo siento. Ten. I'm sitting on the third stair of our conversation in a house I lost the keys to many years ago, sifting through letters that still come in my name, and I want to look you in the eyes and tell you it's okay. So um, I want to leave you probably with something um, going away from the personal and back out into history, which is big, and sometimes I think it's a, it's a lot bigger than me. Um, it is a lot bigger than me. I'm small. History's huge because it keeps growing. It gets fat um, with other people's blood usually, and um, <laughs> and this kind of came out of that. Just a series of questions. Tell me what you believe. What you really, truly believe. What rights you'd fight for. Lay down your life for. What you wanna strive for, save for, misbehave for, or just be brave for. Tell me what you stand for and what you'd sit down at the back of the bus for. Prepare to make a fuss for, bleed for, cuss for. Tell me what you believe, what you really, truly believe. What do you have a dream for and what would you lose sleep for, sigh for, weep for, starve for weeks for? What would you take risks for, raise a glove fist for, sit down and resist for? Chains on the wrist for, please. Tell me what you believe what you really truly believe what would you stand and block a tank for and receive no thanks for just bullets in your chest no peace no rest what could make them want to put you under lifelong house arrest please tell me what you live for and what you die for lie for kill for Surrender your will for What would you give your last resource for Throw yourself under a horse for Prepare to be jailed for 27 years And no bail for Please Tell me what you believe, what you really, truly believe. What would you sacrifice your life for? Get scarred with a knife for? Be put behind bars and risk your children and your wife for? That's your boyfriend, girlfriend, civil partner, your siblings too. What can't you turn a blind eye to because it ain't right to you? Is there something that would make you go to lengths you're not used to? Make a stand even though you know people aren't going to like you? Please tell me what you believe, what you want, what makes you breathe. What would you speak up for? Is there anything you give a fuck? for I thought so I thought so I wish I was where Helen lies for night and day on me she cries for night and day on me she cries Shows where Helen lies on Faker Connolly's. Oh, Helen, fair, oh, Helen, chaste. Were I with thee, I would be blessed. Were I with thee, I would be blessed. Where thou liest slow and at thy rest on Faker Connolly's. 
Helen fair beyond compare I'm like a garland all thy hair I'm like a garland all thy hair Wrapped in my hair forever mere Until the day I die But curse the hair that hatched the thought and curse the hand that fired the shot I curse the hand that fired the shot When in my arms my Helen dropped And died for sake of me This podcast has been produced by me and put together by me with sound production from Stephen Harvey with some interviews and some extra production from Bryony Hawkins with music at the beginning from Sam Wilkinson and playing us out with The Tragedy Is Over, George Brufton and The Reactionaries. It's time to go. go.